when I was first asked to come and speak today, my first response was, I don't think so. I really do try to avoid crowds of people over the age of 11. But over the last year, I've been really challenged by um, people's stories, whether it's at things like reach events or in church or at life group or in school. Each one is a personal account of somebody's life that has been changed by encountering Jesus. And maybe it is part of the fact that I belong to the Jack and Ori generation, but I do like a good story and I like a challenge. So I said yes. And up to this week, I was thinking it really wasn't a very good idea. I was actually really, really nervous, and I still am. But I do believe that God has something that he wants to share today. So have you ever been in a situation where you've listened to somebody's story and thought, I couldn't do that, I have nothing to say, I have no story to tell, or I don't have what it takes? Well, for a long time, I felt I was one of those people. But I want to tell you that if you're here today, then you've had an encounter with God and you have a story to tell. I'm constantly challenged by the kids that I work with and their stories of transformational encounters with Jesus. In our countdown at the start, we see that we're to bring the lost, the last, and the least to Jesus, and we need to make this part of our everyday life. These are challenges that should inspire us daily, and our kids are doing it. I want to share with you three stories of kids that are transforming people's lives. The first story is Joe. He's sitting here. And I have asked his permission to share the story today. Um, Joe, you'll keep me right if I go off on the story, won't you? Yep, good. So Joe decided to sell some of his toys at a car boot sale and wanted to give the money to the homeless. So um, his mum agreed to let him do that, and that was fine. Um, so on Sunday after church, he got somebody on the Rockets team to pray with him, and they headed into Belfast to find a person to give the money to. Now, it had to be just the right person. It couldn't be any homeless person. It had to be a specific one. And when Joe finally found the right woman, he jumped out of the car and went and gave her the money and they had a chat. And she reluctantly took it, but she did take it. And that night when Joe went home, he didn't forget about her. Um, the lady's name was Julianne. He wrote her a letter and drew her a picture. And in the letter, he invited her to church. So the story doesn't end there. Um, Diane wasn't sure whether she'd be able to get the letter to Julianne or not, but she asked Jules, who makes a habit of speaking to homeless people on her way to work, and she'd never come across somebody called Julianne, but um, she was praying on the train on the way in, and who did she meet when she got off the train but Julianne, and she gave her the letter. Julianne was just blown away and absolutely loved it and said, yes, she'd love to come to church. So after some communication and backwards and forwards, uh, Julianne actually came to church um, with Joe one Sunday. Um, but being in Belfast, it made more sense to connect her with Belfast City Vineyard. Uh, she still sleeps with Joe's letter under her pillow. Um, they're still in contact every now and then. And the last we heard, she was waiting for a place in rehab. So I'm sure Joe and Diane and Jules will be really pleased if people would remember to pray for her and make sure that she gets that place in rehab. But her life was transformed by what Joe did. Joe believed that God would tell him who to go to, and he did it, and he listened, and a life was changed. The second story is um, a little different. Hope and Eva, um, who, are, who were P4 and P5 last year, came to me and asked um, if they could organize an event for their friends to come to. And I'm like, yep, go for it. You organize it, I'll just put it into place. So they did, they came with a full plan of what they wanted to do. So they wanted to make jewelry and they wanted to ice cupcakes and hair and makeup. So it was the whole girly thing. Um, so we got it organized quite quickly. 
and we limited it to 30 and we thought, okay, we'll see how it goes. Well, we had it fully booked in 24 hours. So that's unheard of. I had a list of adults queuing up to come and help. Now in kids ministry, that is really unheard of. Um, Seriously, I knew that was God. The minute I had people asking, can I come and do it? So it was fantastic. On the actual night, I mean, you think putting 30 girls full of sugar in one room would be a nightmare. It wasn't. It was an amazing night. And in the middle of it all, Hope and um, Eva gathered their friends together and they shared with them their heart for their friends and God's heart for their friends, that they were daughters of a living king and that they had to leave that night knowing if they forgot everything else, just to remember that they were loved by God and that they were his daughters. And it was absolutely amazing. And actually they stood at the door as each of the girls left and reminded them again, you are the daughter of a risen king. And it was just unbelievable. They acted on their compassion. Nobody told them they were too young. Nobody told them they had no story to tell. But they got out there and believing that with God on their side, they could do anything. They transformed not just the lives of 30 girls, but of all the adults who were in that room that night. The third story is a little girl called Georgia, who's um, P7 in one of the schools that I go to. Um, On the way going to work one day, God told me to take an extra Bible to uh, school with me. And I'm like, okay. He says, you're going to give it away. And I'm thinking, how do you give away one Bible? It's a class of 20 people. Um, he said, ask them, ask them who wants it. So I went around the class and said, who wants it? And I thought, oh no, there's going to be 19 disappointed people. And there were lots of reasons like, oh, my mum doesn't allow me to have a Bible or we don't have a Bible in our house. And I got to Georgia and Georgia goes, we have Bibles in our house. I have a Bible, but my mum's friend, I think could use this Bible. She's having a really, really hard time and she needs to know that God loves her. And I'm like, that's it. I knew instantly she was the one. So gave it to her. That was fine. Nothing else was said. And I came into school a couple of weeks later and there was this uproar in the staff room. They're like, have you heard? Have you heard what happened? And I'm like, no. And they went, you have to find Georgia. So I went to Georgia. I says, right, Georgia, what, what happened? And she goes, well, I gave the Bible to the woman and the woman just burst into tears. She couldn't believe that God would touch her life through a child. And then that news got back to the pastor of her church who then shared the story with the whole church and said, look, the children in this town are the ones who are leading the way. They're leading people to God. So again, didn't think any more about it. Came into school after Easter and again in the staff room, have you heard what happened? And I'm like, no, haven't heard what happened. So went and found Georgia again and she goes, did you hear the news? And I says, no. And she goes, the lady I gave the Bible to gave her life to the Lord. I'm like, that's amazing. She goes, in your church on Easter Sunday. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And I was there that day and didn't even know the woman was here. So that was unbelievable. George's desire to see a life changed by Jesus was greater than her fear of being rejected by somebody who was older. Now we have a saying in Rockets that our kids hear all the time that every encounter with Jesus is life-changing. And from personal experience, I believe that wholeheartedly. But I'm a scientist And it has me questioning everything. Why these kids? Why these encounters? And how come they got inspired and felt helped to lead others? I mean, how many of us worry about our friends to the extent that we'll organize an event just to let them know who they are in Christ? Or travel around Belfast to find the right stranger? Or go to somebody much older and tell them, do you know that God is pursuing you? These kids are part of the Josiah generation. And that's a generation that knows their purpose in God. And more than that, they're willing to live it now. 
So I have to ask a question, is it just enough to simply get out there and invite people to encounter Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at now. And there's one story in the Bible, above all others, that shows the dramatic transformational impact of an encounter with Jesus. One woman's account of sharing her story with her neighbours. And it's from John 4. So then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard from ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour. All I can think is that woman must have had some confidence and some authority that the people would trust her and believe what she said. Her passion and enthusiasm must have been infectious. When you believe something so deeply that it radiates from inside you, people take notice. And they saw something in her that spoke of truth and life, that many of the people in that time became believers. But look at all she said. Come, see a man that has told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? She doesn't do a full preach. She tells her story and then gave the people a chance to encounter for themselves. But it started with one woman's transformational encounter. And twice it mentions, he told me everything I have ever done. So this must be important. And it got me thinking, she had changed. She, so what is it? What do the townspeople know that I don't know? And Ivan's going to read you this bit. Uh, John 4, verses 4 to 9. Um, the meeting. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This meeting was all wrong from the beginning. It was culturally not acceptable. Samaritans and Jews were enemies. They shouldn't have been together. And men were not allowed to speak to women in public and certainly not a rabbi. The time of the day, all decent people were indoors. She shouldn't have been out at that time. And the location, well, here she is half a mile outside the town at a well when there's actually a perfectly good well in the town. So why? Well, there's two key points of things that we can take from this that we need to think It wasn't just by chance that Jesus met her there. He went there. He was waiting for her. He wasn't surprised to see her. And he spoke to her first. He sees her at a time when she's actually being made to feel invisible by everybody else. The second thing that Jesus did is he broke down the social and cultural barriers by speaking to her. He starts to build a relationship with her. 
But look in verse 9 how she points out reasons why he shouldn't be talking to her. And I wonder how many times when we have been in the presence of God, we have found reasons why we're either not good enough for that conversation or why, or we make excuses why we can't encounter God right then. But Jesus doesn't give up. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you notice how she takes him literally? She actually thinks he's offering her water. But she doesn't fully understand. So Jesus tries again and, and lets her know this is different water. This is some kind of special water. This one will give you eternal life. And, you know, so what sort of living water is Jesus talking about? Well, that answer can be found in John seven thirty-eight to 39. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is using water as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit to guide, encourage, and teach. Notice that Jesus is talking about springs or, living, or rivers of living water, and it depends on your translation. But they're to be flowing out of us. But we need to ask ourselves, what kind of living water do we have within us? Is it a bit of a spiritual dripping tap? a stream, or is it flowing as Jesus said it should be? And in verse 12, she starts to question if Jesus is an ordinary man, but she's still not getting it fully. Something is stopping her fully understanding. And the next few verses of the story shed light on exactly what it is that is stopping her seeing it. Roshin? Verses uh, 16 to 26. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Isn't it amazing and just 
a little bit frightening that he knew her. He knew everything about her, why she was really out at that time of the day. He knew what shamed her and he named it, but he didn't want to humiliate her. Instead, he wanted to give her a chance to confess. And until she admits her situation, there's no way of releasing God to act and to forgive. But finally, she is accepted for who she is. And this is where our kids have an advantage. Our kids know that they are loved and accepted by Christ. They know that they are children of a living God. They're not hindered by shame or guilt. We're not born with shame. That's something that other people teach us or put on us. And it is getting in the way. This is part of my story. For years, I carried the weight of shame. And at times, the impact that it had on my life was crippling. It prevented me from believing who God created me to be and it prevented me from doing the things that God had called me to do. I felt I had nothing to offer and was always amazed if anybody would want to be my friend. I mean, if they knew what I was really like, why would they want to know? The shame I carried wasn't my own. It was a result of circumstance, put-downs and keeping people's secrets. But just over a year ago, God was speaking to me about these particular issues and I was getting so frustrated that nothing was changed. Nothing was changing. In a fit of desperation, I told God I was fed up waiting for him to come and deal with it. I was coming to him. And in that instant, I encountered God. The chains literally fell off. I could actually hear them hit the ground. And I knew I was free. In that second, my life was transformed. And like this woman, Jesus was just waiting for me to show up, to take that step towards him. Once her shame was removed. There's nothing stopping her from seeing Jesus for who he is. And this is the same for us. I want you to ask yourself, what are you holding on to today that is hindering you from seeing and hearing Jesus clearly? Because it's at this time, Jesus built on what she needed. He built on her understanding and in doing so made himself known to her. Her life was transformed forever. So this brings us back to the Samaritan woman returning to the town and sharing her story. The people who only hours and days before had made this woman's life so miserable that she was practically in hiding are now listening to her words and believe her. Even though what she said must have been like madness. And I asked myself, what did they see? How had she changed? If you've ever seen the picture or the, or the posture of a person living under shame, their eyes are cast down, they're unable to make eye contact, their shoulders are slumped, they want to be invisible. This was the Samaritan woman. That woman who left the town to collect a jar of water was not the same woman who came back. Her actions coming back into the town are not ones of someone who was ashamed but free. And what a difference one short encounter with Jesus made. She surrendered her guilt and shame to Jesus and no longer had to live under the weight of it but had gained freedom. And that promise is still for us today because in 1 John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus came to take our shame too. We need to let it go because it hindered our relationship with God. I asked at the start, why these kids and why these encounters? And I believe that they demonstrated the key points from this particular transformational encounter without us ever having to teach them. And guided by the Holy Spirit, they did it Jesus' way. And these are the four main points that I think that we should be following in order to transform um, or lead people into transformational encounters. Go to where the people are at or the people that Jesus has put in your heart. 
develop a relationship with them and break down barriers. Build on what they already know about Jesus or on what they need. And like the Samaritan woman, share your story. And if you still don't think you've got a story to tell, tell one of Jesus's because he won't mind. And then invite them to encounter Jesus for themselves. So is it enough to get out there and invite people to encounter Jesus? Yes, it's so simple. A child could do it.